1: True crime, unsolved cases, strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host Kevin Eustace and welcome to the first season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 4 Jill Dando, the coldest case. Jill Dando, known and loved by millions, has been brutally murdered. The 37-year-old presenter died in hospital after being found shot through the head on her own doorstep. Tonight in West London, a massive police hunt for the well-dressed man seen running away down the street in which she lived. That was the BBC News correspondent, Peter Sissons announcing on the 9 o'clock news the murder of the much-loved British TV presenter, Jill Dando, on April 26th, 1999. But this was not your average murder. This, both in its execution and the fact the killer still remains at large, points much more in the direction of a professional hit. But the question remains, why? Who would want a much-loved TV personality professionally assassinated? Is it a mere coincidence that she hosted Crime Watch, the largest UK TV show which asked for the public's help to solve unsolved crimes? Or was she working on something much bigger? something that would be so explosive to the nation if revealed, it was decided she needed silencing. Welcome back to The Deadly Countdown. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and this week we look at one of the most intriguing cases so far. But before we take a deep dive into this case, a few quick announcements. Firstly, I'm rather excited to say... We've started a Patreon as of today. You can head over to patreon.com forward slash The Deadly Countdown. By joining our true crime community over there, you can gain ad-free access to episodes 24 hours before they're released on the general feed. Not only that, but you can also receive access to a Patreon-only podcast, The Cold Countdown, where twice a month we release an episode solely for our Patreons, which, just like today's episode take a look at some of the cold cases that are out there intriguing people around the world. So, if you'd like to support the show, join our community and receive early ad-free releases, plus gain access to a Patreon-exclusive podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. But right now, let's take a look at one of the most intriguing, disturbing, and unresolved cases in the UK. And so for episode four, Jill Dando, The Coldest Case, let's start the clock. Jill Dando was born November the 9th, 1961, in the Somerset tourist town of Weston-Super-Mare in the UK. In her early 20s, Jill made the decision to pursue a career in the media. But even at that young age, her family knew her aspirations were to climb as high as she could, irrelevant of the career path she chose. Her father had a few connections and helped her get a job as a journalist with the local newspaper, The Western Mercury. Jill, then 23 years old, quickly established herself as a competent and respectful reporter. And soon, she landed a job which she knew could lead to those lofty heights she aspired to. The role was the position of a co-host at BBC Radio Devon's breakfast programme, BBC. Those three letters, she knew, held the keys to the doors that she wanted to pass through. Jill was an obvious natural and she transitioned from radio to TV presenting with BBC Plymouth in little time at all. Receiving accolades for her relatability and empathy, it was no surprise when the BBC contacted her for a position on their national BBC One breakfast programme. And despite a slight case of imposter syndrome, given her sudden rise, Jill took a deep breath and agreed to the position, based in the capital. Jill became considerably more identifiable and was firmly established in the public eye as a result of her move to London. Yet, although Jill's desires were being fulfilled, the work was isolating. The early mornings, the late nights, they all negatively impacted her personal life, a personal life she felt that was never truly personal nor fulfilling. Her career, however, was picking up speed and she was soon thrust into the must-attend gala dinners and high-profile social events where she would mix with A-listers of the day, well-known BBC presenters and even members of the royal family. Around this time, Bob Wheaton, the programme's producer, began to show an interest in Jill and she in him. Romantically, their relationship developed into something more, and the two became close. If her confidence was knocked, he would pick it back up, and his experience meant any career guidance was invaluable. Unlike most celebrity couples, they were not at all concerned when the press found out about their relationship. But the fact the press was even curious suggested that Jill's star was ascending to a level of fame that even she may have been blind to. Wanting to showcase her diverse presenting abilities, Jill wanted to work on other shows and subjects. And in 1991, she was given her chance. She presented on the TV show Safari. This double duty of both breakfast TV and daytime TV led to her being featured on the cover of the Radio Times, a weekly publication that, at the time, was read by millions. She subsequently moved on to become the lead host of the TV programme Holiday in 1992. This show provided viewers a variety of vacation destinations, and Jill travelled the globe to experience the many nations and opulences the position afforded. She was thrilled to join the programme and she loved the crew, the role itself and once again, Jill graced the cover of Radio Times. Jill's relationship with Bob ended due to her filming duties on the show. Despite this, Jill's work, income and personal life were all on the up and in early 1995, Jill sold her co-shared property and moved into her own home on Gowan Avenue in Fulham. Over the previous few years, the area had undergone gentrification and was now seeing its first rich and famous inhabitants take root. It was during this year of personal development and transformation that Jill landed her ideal job. The host of the popular BBC One primetime evening programme, Crime Watch a show which covered unsolved crimes from a live studio, showing reconstructions, CCTV footage and interviewing investigating officers before offering a phone number for the general public, should anything jog their memory about the crimes featured. Crime Watch itself had been responsible for catching numerous fugitives and was seen by many as essential viewing. Jill had aspirations of becoming a serious presenter and she won over the hearts of the show's viewers by being genuine, empathetic and down-to-earth in her interactions with the show's guests, including the police officers and victims. With everything apparently coming up roses, she now found love, when a close friend set her up with a colleague, a gentleman named Alan Farthing, their relationship became quite serious rather quickly, and the pair were pictured on holiday together, this time making front-page tabloid news. Alan and Jill became engaged in February 1999, and they were projected to wed on September the 25th, 1999. With the forthcoming momentous occasion, the couple were rumoured to be in talks to be the focus of feature spreads... In both OK and Hello magazines, it seemed Jill was finally content with her life and optimistic for the future. It was just two months later that tragedy would strike for Jill, Alan and all who knew her. As on the 26th of April 1999, a man walked up Jill's path as she jostled with her shopping bags and house keys, perhaps aware of his presence, perhaps not. But Jill, completely unaware, was about to be assassinated. Helen Duville, a neighbour of Jill's, was strolling down Gowan Avenue around 11.45am. Helen had a casual acquaintance with Jill, only exchanging greetings and the like. However, seeing her vehicle was parked outside, Helen looked up Jill's path, hoping to maybe encounter her. But, as she directed her gaze towards the doorway, she saw a sight that would long torment her. There, slumped in the doorway, was a lady, who, upon first observation, seemed unrecognisable as Jill owing to the copious amount of blood that covered her face. She took a closer look and, to her shock, realised indeed it was Jill. Her key still in her hand. The gate closed. Helen took the prudent choice to stay out of the garden in order to protect any evidence. She then made the following harrowing phone call nine
0: nine nine. Thank you. Ambulance service. Hello. Hello, ambulance. I'm walking
1: along Gowan Avenue. It looks like um there's somebody collapsed. Um confidentially, it looks like it's Jill Dando, and she's collapsed in her door. There's a lot of blood. She just approach and check that the lady's breathing. She doesn't look as if she's breathing. Oh, yeah. She's got blood coming from her nose. Her arms are blue. I just need to find out if she needs if she's breathing. Is the lady's chest going up and down? Oh, my God, no, I don't think she's alive. Don't worry, I'm
2: going to get some help.
1: As the police were initially joined by paramedics and then an air ambulance, Jill was swiftly taken to Charing Cross Hospital. However, despite the obvious severity of the situation, it wasn't until later that afternoon that Jill's passing was officially confirmed. Contrary to what was first thought, Jill's murder was not by stabbing, but by the firing of a single bullet to the temple. The killing of a national treasure on a major street in full daylight presented an unprecedented challenge to the police. The nation was rocked. Someone they associated so closely with. A face they saw daily a face that expelled nothing but empathy and warmth, had been assassinated a point-blank range. The police investigation into the Dando murder, which they dubbed Operation Oxford, was the most extensive since the Yorkshire Ripper case. However, they were off to a poor start. You see, in an effort to save Jill paramedics had disturbed the crime scene and there was virtually no forensic evidence. The police did have the various components of the bullet, the one responsible for Jill's death, including the cartridge and the bullet itself, which was scattered throughout the doorway. The post-mortem would reveal that the bullet entered just above Jill's left ear and exited through the area above her right ear. The area of her cranium, which bore the imprint of the firearm's muzzle where it had been pressed against her head, effectively functioned as a silencer. Due to the horizontal trajectory of the projectile, it is possible that Jill and her assailant were positioned at a low elevation at the time of its discharge. The cartridge itself was also intriguing as it bore hand-applied crimping along the side. This might be because the gun was deactivated and revived. In the UK, deactivated firearms were legal but Underworld specialists could reactivate them making them fireable once more. Interestingly, the 9mm pistol used to shoot Jill was rare even in criminal circles, but this was kept from the public. The police were unsure about both motivation and suspects. Was it the work of a proficient hitman? Was it a frenzied fan who just happened to be at the right place at the right time? Also at this time police had to deal with two problems at once. A national treasure killed randomly in a wealthy London suburb and London was also under threat from a man known as the Nail Bomber. This man, David Copeland, was arrested in May 1999 after putting bombs in Brixton Market, Brick Lane and the Admiral Duncan Pub in the middle of Soho. Killing 140 people and wounding many more. Once Copeland was out of the picture, police turned their attention back to Jill's death. Since there were no forensic clues, the police went door to door again, in the hope someone would remember something since the murder. Her next door neighbour was the first person to come forward with any information that may be useful. He said he was working from home when, around 11.30, Jill's car alarm went off shortly, implying she'd remotely locked it. After 30 seconds, he heard a scream. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, what else do you need to hear before you go and look? But the neighbour said it sounded like a scream someone would make when a friend pulls a joke or surprises you. Not the sort of scream that turns heads or implies danger. But he did peer out of the window and saw a man closing Jill's gate. He remarked he appeared well-dressed, respectable, like a friend Jill would know. After glancing back up the pathway, the man left down the street. The empty-handed cops were relieved. They now had a witness, one who would go on to describe the suspect as being strongly built, thick black hair, over 5 feet 7, and wearing a brown jacket, also apparently holding a mobile phone. Well, this was manna from heaven for the police, who finally had a description of the main suspect. But still, no one had observed the event. So, thrown-together e-fits were passed around based on this minimal description, but the response was equally minimal. And so, in an ironic twist, the police turned to Crime Watch, the show that made Jill famous in those years before her murder, for help. The show, particularly because the case involved Jill, immediately agreed to help with the investigation. And reconstructed what they knew of the crime for viewers. A flood of calls and leads forced the police to sort through a mix of nonsense and promising leads. Many tips came from people in the general area of Gowan Avenue. And many of them described seeing a man near and around the streets before and after the murder. They described a man wearing a similar jacket to the one described by the neighbour. Others mentioned a man on a mobile phone. Overwhelmed, detectives resorted to the basics. Who are we searching for? What is the motive? And what sort of person would have carried out this horrific crime? Jill's victimology was difficult to establish, since she was a prominent personality Was this crime related to her personal, public, or professional life? The police were beginning to suspect a stranger killer. The sort of killer famously hard to identify. Someone who kills the next person they see for no reason. Because it was odd how the offender knew when she was home, unaware, fumbling for her keys... That certainly points to a stranger killer. A chancer. But what if she was followed? That would point to something much more targeted, even professional. A chronology for Jill's day was created from 500 hours of CCTV. But nothing of interest was uncovered. It seems nobody followed Jill. Because a suspect was seen using a mobile phone and others saw a guy chatting on one, realising this may be a missed lead, investigators analysed 80,000 local phone data recordings, time-stamped either side of Jill's murder. But no investigation-related information surfaced. Jill's funeral took place on the 21st of May 1999 in Western Supermer, where she was born. The well-publicised event reignited the public's interest in the case. And the police were put under pressure to put this to bed. To find someone, anyone, who had involvement with this murder. The issue wasn't suspects. They had tonnes of suspects. But it was like playing a game of guess who against a blank wall. They had no clues, no evidence nothing that could exclude or highlight a single individual. The police decided to focus on people who had an unhealthy obsession with Jill, which was common for celebrities. But in this case, each obsessive could be a murderer. Around 150 people were found to have a deeply unhealthy obsession with Jill, including one guy who tried to get into her phone records... Another who tried to gain access to her utility accounts and one other who had hundreds of photographs of her on his computer. Yet they all had alibis. Now that the police were actively investigating compulsive stalkers, they started again, evaluating all the statements and leads from the very beginning, seeking anyone who matched the stalker description a disability and housing nonprofit repeatedly reported Barry Michael George an early lead that was first disregarded he came into their offices every day of the week of Jill's death behaving suspiciously and agitating workers asbury basara was his true name the police cross referenced that name in their database and it matched with a Barry George, a man already known to them, due to a conviction for a sex attack in the 1980s, and also arrested when he turned up at the Royal Palace with only a length of rope and a knife. Those who lived in Jill's locale knew of Barry's problems, taking different aliases, telling people he was related to many celebrities Often laughed off, the police began to look deeper into Barry George. They placed a tail on Barry, and to everyone's surprise, it was mundane, ordinary. Barry was not the person they were looking for. Although, arguably desperate for a lead anywhere, this did not stop the police. Detective Constable Gallagher decided to pay Barry a visit. However, he found no reply, so he left a note for Barry to make contact. And eventually, Barry did. And they interviewed him for the first time, just shy of one whole year after the murder. They asked Barry about his whereabouts on the 26th of April, the year before. Barry explained he'd been to visit some offices he jumped a taxi that day, but he denied even knowing Jill, or that she lived in Fulham. Barry openly admitted to knowing how to use a gun, even offering to return back to his house with the police in tow. When asked, Barry happily shows the coat that he believes he was wearing on the day of the murder. Even though he was amiable to each of their requests the police still decided to get a search warrant for Barry's house. In pursuit of evidence and armed with a warrant, but without Barry George being there or aware of the warrant, the police entered his house and took the coat he claimed to have been wearing at the time of the crime. They also discovered records on the price of guns. Albeit these seemed to be years old, Probably the most damning thing they found at the time was rolls of undeveloped film, with images of more than 400 different, and more importantly, unaware, women on them. However, while definitely cause for concern, none of them were of Jill Dando. Barry appeared to fit several of the suspect's traits, including an interest in weaponry, and following women. Several images of Barry with a pistol were also uncovered. Police seized potentially valuable objects from Barry's residence, photographed them and forwarded everything to the forensic lab for analysis. Barry George was now suspect number one in the murder inquiry and they monitored him throughout May 2000. Barry would be spotted talking to ladies and visiting his normal spots. But again, there seemed no cause for concern. But on May 19th, 2000, Detective Chief Inspector Campbell believed he'd solved the case. The lab's findings were in, and a little bit of gun residue was found in one of the pockets of the coat Barry said he was wearing the day of the murder. Although this particle was one-thousandth of an inch in size, the laboratory deemed it to be consistent with the chemical composition of the projectiles that murdered Jill. Significantly, whilst it was not possible to definitively attribute the origin of the residue to the precise projectile that caused her demise, it was undoubtedly from a weapon of a comparable nature. But through the eyes of the police, Scientific evidence now accompanied the circumstantial evidence that had previously implicated Barry as a suspect. With these things combined, in their mind, the search was over. Barry George was apprehended on May 25, 2000. In interviews, Barry was considerably less cooperative and had already retained the services of a solicitor. When Barry George exercised his right to remain silent, all interviews came to a halt. During this time, an identification parade took place in which two of Jill's acquaintances, including the man who lived next door, were presented with a variety of men. Barry refused to participate physically. However, his photograph was displayed in the array alongside the others. Notably... Barry George was not identified by either person as the individual they'd observed traversing the street on that day. Despite this pivotal evidence, Barry George was accused of murder by the police and the trial commenced in October 2000. The defence team said that the evidence against Barry was mostly circumstantial, with the exception of the minuscule 1,000th of an inch residue. They also argued it was completely unverifiable that this residue originated from the murder scene. The likelihood of the prosecution securing a conviction seemed largely unlikely, specifically with the evidence being mostly circumstantial. However, when the prosecution presented the forensic evidence in court, it was claimed to be conclusive proof that Barry George had not only confessed to wearing the coat during the time of the murder, but also that the gun residue inside the coat's pocket had been confirmed by a forensic team to be a high match to that of the crime scene. And this evidence seemed highly incriminating. But due to the coat being cleaned and worn for a full year before being taken into police custody... Along with the potential for residue contamination at the laboratory, the defence made significant efforts to undermine the integrity of the evidence chain in the case. Barry refrained from testifying in the trial because medical experts determined that his epilepsy rendered him unfit to do so. Following the presentation of final statements by both parties, the jury was instructed to begin deliberations the nation held its breath, awaiting the outcome. After six days of deliberation and re-examining the coat for one last time, the jury reached their decision. On July 2nd, 2001, by a 10-to-1 majority, Barry George was sentenced to life imprisonment. Shock reverberated in the courtroom as many people believed the Crown Prosecution's case was weak, with little evidence, and the majority of people did not believe there would be a conviction. The defence team argued that the defendant's conviction was erroneous because of the uncertainty surrounding the forensic evidence, in particular the potential for contamination due to the significant period during which the coat had not been examined, which were essential to their appeal. During Barry George's pre-trial detention, psychological evaluations were conducted. These assessments revealed that he had personality disorders, elements of ADHD and potentially Asperger's syndrome. The evaluations definitively determined that his IQ was 76, indicating cognitive impairment. The test unequivocally showed that Barry George would have had difficulty comprehending the trial proceedings, as well as perhaps misinterpreting how his own words were perceived by others, especially the police. However, three judges rejected this allegation, and in December of that year, the House of Lords denied Barry George the right to further appeal. In his case, it seemed that that would be the end for Barry George, and the conviction... However, as the doubt surrounding Barry George's conviction increased, popular opinion started to believe that he was genuinely innocent of the murder. In 2006, five years after his conviction for the murder, Barry George's new defence team presented the same forensic evidence. The forensic evidence that had sparked controversy during the first trial. However, significant advancements in forensic testing had been made, leading them to suspect this would render the forensic evidence inconsequential. Consequently, the forensic evidence given to the jury was indeed deemed inconsequential. The jury at the time was also informed that the gun residue corresponded to the firearm used in the murder, whereas in reality the residue could have originated from any firearm of the same kind, not just that specific firearm. The court upheld the appeal based on the forensic expert's determination that the particle, being of insufficient size, could not definitively establish its origin or establish a conclusive connection to the bullets used. Therefore, in 2008 a retrial was ordered, with the exclusion of the forensic evidence. So the retrial went ahead with only the original circumstantial evidence that had been presented at the trial. And when the jury returned, Barry George was acquitted of the murder of Jill Dando. The police had to begin the process of clarifying that not only did they fail to apprehend the proper individual in 2000, but they are still unaware of the identity of Jill's murderer. No more details on the investigation into the murder of Jill Dando have been publicly disclosed by the Metropolitan Police. The murderer, or indeed assassin, of Jill Dando remains at large to this day. As you would expect, many conspiracies have sprung up around why Jill was assassinated. Maybe it was a criminal hit after a successful conviction following an appeal by Jill on Crime Watch. Another thought provoking conspiracy is that it was a revenge attack for a NATO bombing of Serbia's Radio TV of Serbia, and that a Serbian warlord named Arkan ordered the hit. Coincidentally, or maybe not so, a fellow journalist, Slavko Kurovija, was killed outside of his home as he was gaining entry a few days before Dando in Belgrade. The method was more or less identical and the bullet had handmade crimping on the casing. One of the more interesting, albeit fringe conspiratorial-wise, is the claim that Princess Diana, in her days at the palace, had compiled a list of famous, high-ranking people, including royalty, who were involved in a child abuse ring, and was stated as saying, if I go, it will be at the hands of MI5 or MI6. Apparently, she gave a trusted confidant the location of this list, and stated that if something suspicious happens to her, This confidant is to go to the hiding place, known only to them two, and expose the list. The day after her death, the confidant, arriving at the Spencer estate, was passed by a black-suited man, leaving the very room Diana's secret hiding space was. When the confidant went to the hiding space, they found it was empty. The list had been taken. It's widely believed, Jill Dando, due to her initial rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, had compiled a damning dossier herself, exposing both high ranking politicians, famous personalities at the government owned BBC, and indeed royalty, thus prompting a preventative assassination. What's so interesting about this particular conspiracy theory is that this was circulating before any revelations about Jimmy Savile, the BBC long-standing presenter, and any allegations around Prince Andrew and his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. But conspiracy theories are just that until they're proven otherwise. Social media did not exist when Gildando was executed. But if it did, due to how everybody documents their day digitally and takes photographs everywhere, uploading information second by second, maybe we would know the true murderer of Gildando. And maybe much, much more. But for Gildando, the coldest case... Let's stop the clock. I'd like to thank you all for choosing to spend your time here with me on this show. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, all at Deadly Countdown. And if you'd like early ad-free releases and Patreon-only podcasts, head over to patreon.com forward slash The Deadly Countdown. As you may be able to tell from my accent, I'm from Liverpool in England. And next week, we take a look at a case, which is rather close to my own heart. He was shot late this evening in front of his apartment building in New York City. Apparently, he was killed almost immediately. The man who shot John Lennon walked up to the musician as he was leaving his limousine. According to eyewitnesses, he said, Mr. Lennon? and then fired at him point-blank at least five times. That's right, next week, we look at Mark David Chapman, the man who murdered John Winston Lennon. All audio used in today's show is protected by fair use, and links to each audio clip is in the show notes. So, until next week, when we take a look at the troubled mind of the Beatle killer, so, until next week, when we take a look at the troubled mind of the murderer of John Lennon, let's stop the clock.